FASWA is a podcast about Bigfoot. It's recorded for the skeptics, the believers, the knowers, and those who just have a casual interest in the subject. For more information, visit saswhat.com. Hey guys, it's Seth Breedlove. This week's episode of Saswa is a little late, and um, it is actually an episode of Mark Matsky's show, Monsterland, Ohio, and you might be wondering why that is. Uh, the fact is, Mark and I had originally intended on recording two episodes, one of his show and then one of Saswa, and unfortunately, we talked for almost an hour on the Monsterland show, and we had already been at the restaurant for an hour when we recorded that. So we were there for over two hours, and by then I was not ready to record an entire episode of Sasswat on top of that. And I'm pretty sure we would have been thrown out of the restaurant on our ear at that point. So um, this is just an episode of Monsterland Ohio with Mark and Andy. So if you're a listener of that show, you've probably already heard it. If you're not a listener of that show, you should check out Monsterland Ohio and um, just give them a listen because that's Mark's show and Andy's show. And Andy is a future president of the United States. So um, thanks and listen in to the episode, which you are. You're, you're listening right now. This is Monsterland Ohio Radio, episode 32, live from Fisher's Pub. This is Monsterland Ohio Radio, the official podcast of monsterlandohio.blogspot.com. I am your host, Mark Matsky. Andy's on his third pint, so you'll have to excuse him. Conversely, Fisher's Restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> I'm your other co-host, Andy Matsky. And as uh, he said, we're at Fisher's Pub. Oh, I'm sorry. And it's... Uh, about we're about ready to close the place up. Oh yeah, <laughs> shutting it down. Moving on to the next. <laughs> <laughs> Winking lizards across the street. <laughs> yeah, in beautiful downtown Peninsula, Ohio, and we're really happy to have Seth Breedlove with us live and in person. A first. A first. Yes, that's right. We were waiting for the thirty-second episode. I think. Oh, it's a special event. <laughs> the new 32. Hey, 30 episodes, though. This is like three times as many episodes as my first podcast, The Flying Saucer Cast, made it to. Oh, yeah. It's like triple, four times, something like that. That was with Paul? That was with Paul. I think we did like six episodes. He just texted me. Whoa, we're going... He just texted me. It was like the first time I've talked to him in ages. I used to do a show with a... I'll explain for the listeners. I used to do a show called The Flying Saucer Cast about comic books with my friend Paul years this is like the birth of podcasting so Mm -hmm. like 2008 yeah and it lasted like eight eight episodes what kind of stuff did you guys cover I mean it was supposed to be just comics but um, we talked about movies and just pop culture in general I mean it was basically what became ancillary characters but it was just him and I instead of Alan and Ethan and it was extremely <clears throat> amateur hour. So it was like recording into those Turtle Beach headset, like gaming headsets. <laughs> yeah. And um, we usually there was like an insane amount of background noise. And we were recording kind of like you and I do where I'd sync it up with the post. Mm-hmm. But we had so many disasters doing it that way because it was in 2008. So like that was kind of just becoming a thing. And um, <clears throat> there was... One night in particular, I remember, where we recorded an entire show, and it crashed. My, my audacity crashed afterwards, mm-hmm. and the show was split up. I don't know if you've had this happen. I don't know. I don't think this is how it happens anymore, but when the project recovery file came up, it had split the entire show, hour and a half, into little second-long clips. And I sat there. I'm not making this oh, up. Wow. I sat there and copied and pasted each individual clip into a timeline <laughs> for like five hours. Yeah. Yeah. True story. So what was the listener feedback like on that? I mean, did you... There were, there were no listeners. <laughs> I don't... I, I honestly... Because we weren't on Twitter. We, I mean, it was 2008, so I don't really know. Facebook wasn't anywhere near as big as it is now. 
so we didn't have a social media following and I think we just did that classic thing and just put it up and hoped friends would listen so I think we a couple of Paul's friends might have listened and maybe my brother but I don't think anyone was listening I think we did seven episodes hmm. and how'd that morph into ancillary characters then well, they, uh, ancillary characters came about because of New 52. Yeah. Yeah, because we got, um, we started a blog um, and started doing written reviews of all the New 52 number ones. And because of that, we were like, look, there's obviously enough to talk about with comics, so let's get, let's get, you know, a podcast going and talk about it. And at first, that sh- show started out the, the exact same way, though. It was just Paul and I. And then it, we added Alan, and then we added Ethan. And then we did, a, what, like 120 episodes? I don't know how many episodes of that we did. Yeah, this guy would know. Yeah. How many is it? I think it's in the 120s. Yeah, yeah. Like that. We did. I mean, I was happy with the show, but that was another show. People, I, I talk to people now on Saswa who think that show was big for some reason. Like, it had a huge following but I think our average, like a good episode for us, would maybe have like 120, 120 downloads. So like no one was listening to it. See, and that is surprising because I mean, you go on the website when the website was mm-hmm. live, yeah, and the artwork was really cool, and some of the people that you talked to, yeah, were pretty, you know. They were in the industry. We got Jeff Smith on there. Yeah. That was the biggest show we ever did. Yeah. Because it was Jeff Smith. Right. I was a huge, like, Bone fan. And I had, like, Lucy Nicely um, is one of my favorite cartoonists. She does these little, like, mostly, like, autobiographical comics, like graphic novels. And, um, but they're just about her life and, like, aspects of her life. And I talked to her for like a half hour on an episode, and that was awesome too because I'm a big fan of her work. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, we did have Jeff Johns was a fan. Like Jeff Johns listened to the show. In fact, like he only followed 120 some people at one point on Twitter, and we were one of the people. And that was like our claim to fame was that. Oh yeah. And then the other one was that the guy, something Goldberg, the guy that does, not not Goldberg. The show is called The Goldbergs. Okay. Have you ever seen that show? It's on. I think it's on ABC. Yeah. The guy that created that show listened to our show huh. too. But yeah, there was no one listening. I mean, we did it for ourselves, which I think is the only way to do podcasting. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless you're like going to make a living at it, the only way to do podcasting is to do it for yourself. Mm-hmm. Or like, like when I say that, I don't mean you're only talking to it to hear yourself talk. I'm like, like we did ancillary characters because it was my chance to talk to. Paul and Alan, who live in North Carolina and Kentucky, and hang out with my brother every week and talk about mm-hmm. something we liked other than, you know, it was escapism. And it's the same way with Saswa, like it's our chance to talk. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, honestly, because you're not getting anything out of podcasting. You don't get money what? out of it. <laughs> <laughs> we're, not, we're not making millions of dollars, yeah. contrary to popular belief. Holly, Hollywood. Yeah. Hollywood do that. Uh, but yeah, you gotta, if you lose, I think if you lose sight of that, then, because I know people who got into podcasting think they, thinking they'd be able to like turn ad, ad revenue into like big, you know, like a living almost, and it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Things like Patreon. I see people using Patreon now, but I don't know that you wanted this conversation to just be about podcasting. Well, no, it's cool, because, you know, we've, we've done podcasts. Yeah together but we've never really talked about podcasting yeah. as a as well, a thing as on Saswat before because Saswat was a blog before it was um, the show and mm-hmm. I wrote those episodes or uh, those posts about podcasting before mm-hmm. I'd ever done a show mm-hmm. I wrote like two posts about podcasting just because I listened to so many podcasts back then and Bigfoot podcasts were one of the things I was listening to and it struck me that there were no really good Bigfoot podcasts outside of the Bigfoot show. And I think Shane was doing... Shane from uh, Monster X. I don't know if you've... What, Crypto Logic wasn't around. Shane was doing something, because I knew of him before then. Mm-hmm. And then the other show that went on to gain a huge following and then turned out to be a giant scam. <laughs> <laughs> 
just angered 60 listeners. Yeah. No, well, I think there's probably more listeners to this podcast that wouldn't have any yeah. real idea what you're talking yeah. about. But yeah. uh, like, we want Godzilla. Why is he talking about Bigfoot and podcasting? What's yeah. going on? No, but it's it's a, like it is. There's a, a work a work aspect to it. Like you've got to work at podcasting, and then but it's got to be fun, and you've got to just be mm-hmm. doing it to talk to your friends, right? Because money isn't gonna Mm-mm. money isn't gonna happen. Yeah, not and and you can make money at it. You can stick an ad. You could sell. Sasswood could sell ad revenue right now. We had this is some inside baseball stuff, but like we had um, one episode get like eighty thousand downloads. Which I mean, you can start selling ad space on your shows at like five thousand, like five thousand listens. Mm-hmm. But um, but who really wants to like? I always hated turning on a podcast and then listening to an ad for a minute. At the beginning of the show, yeah, or in the middle, or in for the that middle, matter, or you know. anywhere really. Like I just can't deal with it. Yeah. So that's why anytime we do like a small town monsters thing, if I do try to stick a plug in for small, it's usually at the end of the show. I try to, or at least I'll stick it into a show that has to do with that subject. <laughs> so it's not just like I make movies and you should buy them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, that's a perfect segue, too, because we want to turn around and post this episode as soon as possible because there's still time left in a Kickstarter for Boggy Creek Monster. And that's one of the big things we wanted to talk about tonight with you is just the uh, whole movement that led to Small Town Monsters and uh, kind of where you hope to go with that. But right now, the the Kickstarter for Boggy Creek Monster, you just go to Kickstarter, you search, enter Boggy, that's the first thing that comes up. Yeah. And we'll, by the time, when this posts, there'll still be at least a week left in the Kickstarter itself. So tell us a little bit about Boggy Creek Monster and uh, maybe the, the brief history of Small Town Monsters. Yeah. <clears throat> well, um, there are movies that we make and the movie, their movie, hi, their movies about Bigfoot, and um, but they approach the subject of much more seriously, I think, than a lot of other <clears throat> kind of cryptid entertainment does. Is what I usually say. So, like, we try to approach it very seriously, um, still make it entertaining, obviously, but basically offer what you're not getting on cable TV, and we're doing it entirely independently. So. Um, great song. Yeah, <laughs> I queued that up. Yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> Fantastic song. Um, no, so uh, we've been doing it for about a year. We started with Minerva Monster, and now we're putting out Beast of Whitehall and uh, Boggy Creek Monsters. Going to be the third movie in the series, and it focuses on the Legend of Boggy Creek film uh, set in Falca, Arkansas. And, uh, yeah, the Kickstarter is entirely to fund the production of the movie, which we'd never done before, and I wasn't sure it would be a success as it was. Like, I was, I think I told you even leading up to it, like, I was very nervous. In yeah. fact, I actually, I lowered the asking, asking goal the day, the day before it went live, and then I raised it the day it went live. Mm-hmm. And, uh, right before I went live, I asked Adrian, and I was like, should I... Should I just lower it? Because it's stupid. And she's like, you can't live your life in fear. So uh, I was like, all right. So mm-hmm. we launched it. And we had a third of our funding by the, by the time I went to bed. So in, in 45 minutes, we had a, a third of our funding. Yeah. Yes. And then we had <clears throat> 100% of the funding by four days in. And we're doing, we're at like 153 last I checked. 170 backers, 153% of our backing. So... I think it's the approach we take to it in a way. With Boggy, I can't take a ton of credit because it's it's the people are aware of that movie and want to be involved in anything that has Legend of Boggy Creek attached to it. So, do you have any ideas for the future of Small Town Monsters? Yeah, that you could share. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I can tell you what I would like. My dream what would, would like to do. Yeah, well, my, it's like when we were talking to Gene St. Jean, mm-hmm. and then I lost the episode. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that 
that um, we had that conversation. He was talking about all the ideas he's got for things they can do with creature replica down the road. And I was like, I know exactly what it means because I would like to do. I definitely want to get away from Bigfoot for at least a movie or two after Boggy. So I'd like to do something like Thunderbirds, but um, my dream right now would be to go back to to uh, that upstate New York, Vermont area and do Cham. Just because when we were there the first time, I was like. We, we shot, there's footage of Lake Champlain in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you, I don't think I put, I should probably put a, put a title in there or something that said that. I don't think I did. But Just to indicate yeah. what you're looking at. <clears throat> yeah, because it's during the uh, Adirondack culture part. Um, it's a shot of a lake and it's Lake Champlain. But that lake is massive. So like, to get to like where the bulk of the sightings are happening, they're like four hours away. Well, for us to drive up there, yeah, wow, because of how long the river is, or the lake is, and then how you know, kind of wide it's not very wide actually, from what I can see, but um, yeah, uh, Champ, I'd love to do, and um, but what I really would like to do, and it was is head more back toward what we did with Minerva, where we found a case that like most people didn't know about, and do something like that. But I don't know what that would be. Because everyone knows Champ. Everyone knows Ogopogo. But I, I would like to find one of those like local monsters that people aren't aware of and build awareness. Or, you know, like show people, there's an awesome story here. <clears throat> you just didn't know about it. So that's, we got, we've gotten away with, from that with Whitehall. And then obviously with Boggy Creek. Everyone knows about Boggy Creek. But not that you're not going to find new aspects to the story as you will. I don't know. If you have, do you have any? What do you want to see us do? I don't really know. Something I would like to maybe see, even if it's like a short. Since we're in Peninsula, would be try to do Peninsula Python. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Yeah. I wonder if anyone is even around though, because wasn't that very early 1900s? Yeah, yeah it was early, real early, um, maybe early 20th century, I think. But the thing is, uh, Peninsula Library yeah. does acknowledge the Python's yeah. history with a couple works of art inside. I and just wonder if there stuff was like that. I feel like at some point I did read that there was a sighting or two of this thing at some point after the fact, mm-hmm. after the But I don't know. I'd, I'd love to do little things like that. Like I'd love to do something about the Mothman. But like I'm saying, like everyone's done the Mothman. But I know that, you know, the way we would do it would just be completely different. But mm-hmm. is it enough to... I don't know. I don't know that I'm enticed enough to go do a Mothman movie. There's a ton of stories I want to do. I Champ is one of them. I'm, tr- I'm racking my brain because I talk about this all the time. I love... I mean, Bigfoot creatures. I really want to do Big Muddy Monster. And Momo is my... Momo is one of my favorite stories, period. And I'd, I'd love to be able to do that. But you're, you're so pressed for time, <clears throat> like with the Momo story. Mm-hmm. A lot of those people are real old and getting yeah. up there. Like Flatwoods. We'll never be able to do a Flatwoods monster movie. That's what, like my dream movie, and from what I've been able to understand, from what I'm led to believe, mo- most of those people have passed away. Because it was in the 19, what, like early 1950s? Something mm-hmm. like that. A lot of those people are gone. I mean, when we went to do that one you and I talked about on Sasquatch, the Big Head, Orange Eyes, mm-hmm. Charles Mill Lake Monster. I couldn't even track a single person down other than the one boy who saw Big Head and he doesn't want to speak about it. Mm-hmm. So that story is going to be lost. Like that That's one of the stories that will be lost because right. it's, not, it's not documented. You don't hear people talk about Big Head. Mm-hmm. I yeah, it's about the, it at of, most it'd be an entry in right. some old Bigfoot book somewhere. I think, I think Coleman has mentioned Big Head because mm-hmm. I was just reading something and read someone mention it. Yeah. The guy who did all the investigation on that was Schaffner. Right. Ron Schaffner. I mean, if and this is just just now came to me, if we ever go back and do that Ohio Bigfoot book, we really should try to get um, try to get Schaffner involved. I right. Gotta, I got to take this. Okay. Hello? Live. Yeah, so as we're sitting here, I get a phone call. 
So, like, we're talking about these projects, <clears throat> the Small Town Monsters movies, and when we were, I'm really sorry, I never would have answered that except it's a call from Vermont, yeah. so I know it's someone, something related to Whitehall. Yeah. It's Ben and Jerry's. Yeah. <laughs> it's a guy that had a sighting who wants to have, uh, who wants to tell me about his sighting, and he's asking me what the date is for the oh. event so he can come and tell me about it. But while we were making Whitehall, we kept running into, like, these people that would want to tell me about their sightings but they don't want to talk about it on camera. Mm-hmm. So that's what that was. A guy from Vermont who had a sighting. And that's one of the weird things about the Whitehall story is like everyone wants to tell you about their sighting but they don't want to tell it on, mm-hmm. on camera. I've had, that's probably the sixth phone call I've gotten from someone from that area. Why do you think people have a need to tell somebody that it happened? You know, because clearly... And then it's the, almost like confession. Yeah. Right. I don't know. Right. Because it, it, it kind of flies in the face of, like, they're making it up. Mm-hmm. Because if there's someone who doesn't want to tell people about it in a public way, but they want to talk to you privately about it, that kind of, like, doesn't... To me, that doesn't sound like someone hoaxing the story. Mm-hmm. So at that point, is it just a misidentification of something... Yeah, or what? Like, and that—that's the type of thing we talk about yeah. a lot on yeah. Sasswood. But it's fascinating. It does argue in the favor of yeah. something legitimately happening. Yeah. I don't Otherwise, get it. why would you pull somebody aside yeah. personally like that? Yeah. I don't know. But they figure that you're a sympathetic ear at least because when, of what you're involved with. When we were there the first time, we had this guy call uh, call me on the phone. He wanted to tell me about a sighting he had. When he was out hunting with a friend of his, and they had a dog. They were back in the woods, and they see something ahead of them stand up and turn around and walk into a tree line. All they saw was a silhouette. He might have said something about red eyes, but I can't. I mean, it was during the daylight, so that might just be me making that up. Um, <laughs> but they go, you know, they go into this. It goes into a, a tree line, and the dog turns around and bolts and runs two miles back to the car. They were, like, trying to find the dog out in this field where they were hunting. Couldn't find it, so they're like, well, let's just go back. They walked two miles back to the car, and the dog's at the car. So, I mean, this thing was spooked. But, I mean, I couldn't get him to talk about it. He's like, my buddy will never talk about it. He's like, um, I'll have to think about it. And then he called me later and said he wasn't going to. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had three calls the first time we were there from people wanting to talk to me about their story, just not on camera. And we had a lady that runs an antique an antique store there. She had a sighting. She didn't want to talk about it on camera. So there's a lot of sightings, but no one's mm-hmm. talking. What about Minerva? Did you have a similar experience? Uh, I think Minerva was way different. Like, I actually think Minerva could have been a, <clears throat> a very different movie than what it ended up being because we had so many people after the movie came out wanting to talk about stuff. Like, hey, is your movie done? Because I would love to talk, you know, like wanting to come on camera and talk about it. So it was mm. really different. Because I think, I think if we did like a Minerva revisited type of thing, we could go back and shoot a whole ton of interviews mm-hmm. for that. Yeah, which we need to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In your uh, like the press stuff that you've done for the Beast of Whitehall and the Kickstarter for Boggy Creek. What's some of the weirder questions you've been asked? I mean, have you, ever, have you gotten some weird uh, vibes from interviewers? Interviewers. Um, the the like super paranormal stuff always comes up. We had, we did. Now that now that I'm saying this, <clears throat> we were asked about like, you know what? It wasn't a question. The weirder one I've had is a person who um, claimed to mind speak with animals. And this was during Minerva, the press from Minerva. And they wanted to know if I could take them to the location so they could try to mind speak with the uh, Minerva monster. So that was one of the weirder ones. But we've had... Um, <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> um, well, you just like... Uh, I, think I, I think... I mean, I remember this because my parents were like, I couldn't believe you kept your cool. I was like, well, what am I going to do, blow up at them? Right, jump over the table. Yeah, yeah shut up. Uh, no, um, I think I just said, uh, you know, it's certainly a thought. So, like, it's an interesting idea. Because, I mean, I guess if you believe that you can talk to animals, why wouldn't you be able to go out and have some sort of mind-speak yeah. conversation with a Bigfoot? But 
that was one of the stranger, and that was a call in. You always, it's you like anytime someone calls in on a show on Whitehall, we've had some really cool people call in on a couple of the shows we we've done. So mm-hmm. nothing super weird so far in Whitehall. And you get the stuff about like paranormal, but with the Whitehall case, there is like a UFO flap connected with it. So and there's the red eye, so it's just going to naturally come up in the mm-hmm. conversation. Distracting music. Yeah. That's Asia, is it not? Never mind. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, the question you probably get asked in every interview, we'll ask it to. What drew you into the Bigfoot topic in the first place? You want me to tell a story about like the guy at church and all that? Sure. Or do you want to whatever. Or is this more like about? No, I mean no, whatever, because however like you I, I've that. been thinking about what got me into all this beyond just like um, beyond just the uh, you know like I went to Bolivar and I was like driving back roads beyond yeah. that I like because there's something beyond that. I mean, obviously there's something psychological that gets you into it or excites you about it because of um, <clears throat> some of the stuff that's gone on in Ohio. That made me feel a little like I guess I lost I've lost in the last year some of that like wide-eyed I think Brandon called it like wide-eyed optimism like being excited about the subject of like an undiscovered creature living in the woods mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily anyone's fault other than mine for making this something that isn't a living I'm not making a living at this contrary to popular belief but like it's something that's become at least partially a business because you're running you know you're making movies and you gotta sell the movies and that kind of thing so maybe that's my fault that 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 happened Mm -hmm. but I did feel like for a little while I lost some like not that I didn't care but you just didn't have the same kind of excitement about going looking or whatever that's what got me into it it's like the idea that there could be something out there that other that that you know, is an undiscovered creature that's roaming, you know, 50 feet behind your house. You yeah. I mean, that's that's what got me into it. I grew up in a place where there was a big field and a huge woods and a major water source running right behind my house. And so I grew up around that. And, mm-hmm. and now I'm, you know, 34 and I'm still into the subject because of the same thing. I think that's probably why most people get into it. I would imagine. The one thing I've been thinking about lately is that you know, there just seems to be a divide. There's people who are deeply interested, and there's people who are not only not interested, but they don't even seem like they want to think about it. Yeah. And I've just been really just sort of mulling that over lately. Like, what's the difference between personalities there but it just seems to be the case that either this is something you're willing to entertain yeah. and you think is interesting or you don't even want to I don't know you'll act like it's just the stupidest thing I, I think ever. it's the same thing as like people that are into comic books and, and people that aren't into comic books like the people that aren't into it aren't necessarily going I'm vehemently opposed to comic books it's just I'm not you know it doesn't register with them I think I think one thing I'm trying to do with Small Town Monsters is open the eyes of those people. Not not to, like, become a believer or anything like that, because I'm not a believer myself, but to be, like, um, to say, hey, there's, there's something really cool about this subject. There's this history behind it, beyond just, like, the history of people seeing upright walking hairy creatures, but the history of the entire subject, like, the people that have studied it, like Grover Krantz and Rene DeHinden. These guys are, like, fascinating. I mean, that's part of what you and I, I think that's part of what drew both of us to the subject is just the culture that's built up around it and this history behind the subject itself. So I don't think, I don't think it's even like, why aren't other people into it? I don't think those people are aware of how much is actually going on with the subject that they probably would find really, really intriguing. Because like, you and I talk about Sasquatch every week for an hour now. But like we've been doing it for over over a year, almost two years. Almost two years. Yeah, almost two years, and we haven't completely run out of things to talk about. Mm-hmm. And I don't see that happening. Like the episode we did last week, the bizarre, 
that that like reminded me. There's there's endless amounts of things you can talk about. Right. Like the napes. This this idea of like you know North American undiscovered apes. Like just just primates that aren't necessarily like a Bigfoot type creature. Mm-hmm. Um. Or just the personalities involved. The personalities involved, yeah. But there's just so many aspects to it that you can keep exploring. And I just think that part of the problem is the public perception of what Bigfooting is. And we've talked at length on our show about the positives of finding Bigfoot. And, And I would continue to do that. Like, I still watch the show. But I think there's a lot... There's a huge, massive majority of people that don't know anything about Bigfoot because they associate it with, you know, people screaming and running around the woods, banging on trees and that kind of thing. Or mountain monsters. Yes. And so I'm trying to show, like, there's, beyond that, there's there's these really intriguing human stories that are, you know, have this phenomenon at the, at the heart. Mm-hmm. But there's, you know, it's about the people, too. So our movies are about the people. It's really what it comes down to. Which is funny, because they're all titled after the creature. Right. So. And it changes their lives. I think that's one thing that comes through in the films that you've, that you've done, that I've seen, is you see a profound change in people after they've had this experience. Well, yeah, I mean, that's why we... There's this, like, very specific 3X structure we followed with Whitehall. But it was there in Minerva. It's just it's just not as overt. Mm-hmm. And it'll be there, hopefully, in, in, in Boggy. But it was always this idea of um, the, the town, how the town is affected. Well, it starts out, you know, the opening is the town. This is the place. These are the people. This is what it's like. Middle section is like, this is the story. And then the end is, like, how did the story impact everything around it? And, you know, in Minerva, like I said, it's not as overt in Minerva. In Whitehall, it's, I think it's very overt. Like, it's, it, it could have been more overt. I mean, we could have, I wish we had some of the people that were still, you know, that were involved in the Hebert incident still with us, so we could have talked a little bit more about, like, what the ongoing effects of it are. But, yeah, it's, it's about the people and and how it changed their lives and how it impacted them and if it was a positive experience or a negative experience so far I would argue that like especially for like the Catons and the um, uh, the the Gosselins it was negative maybe you know like the Gosselins took a lot of ridicule and stuff but Paul was obviously kind of enamored with this subject too like you know, like he was going up in planes with nature photographers looking for the creature, like days after everything happened. I mean, he was trying to solve the mystery. And you got to wonder, like his brother did tell us, and it's, it's in the extras on the DVD, but he said Paul was terrified for years afterward. But you got to think there was a part of him that was like, I want to know what I saw that night. Like, and it's, and it almost, oops, sorry. It almost is as much of an adventure story as it is a horror movie. I mean, there's a really cool fictional Stand By Me type movie here where, like, these three kids see something unknown one night and then one of them becomes completely obsessed with it. Maybe even loses himself in it for the rest of his life until he dies. I mean, he was still out there looking. It's it's the same concept um, with Smokey Crabtree yeah. and, and, you know, the Falcon Monster. Like they, it becomes their white whale. Mm-hmm. I love that idea. Yeah, it is. It's perfect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have a question. Mm-hmm. Would, would you one day truly want to see a Bigfoot? I know that sounds stupid, but yes. Okay. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm sure I'd, you know, urinate, <laughs> poop my pants, whatever. Um, you might even pook. Yeah. yeah. Pook. Pook. <laughs> Callback. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. If I, if I, I mean, if they're real, you, I want to see one. I just got to be something. I mean, Sam's poster for a Whitehall. Um. Something about the way the creature's coming at you, and it, the way it's just the size of it just seems so massive. And I was looking at it, and and I don't know if you know this, but like, the background is the field. Like that is literally the field that. Uh-huh. You know, like I've walked that line of trees back 
to the back, and you're you're looking at it, and you're like, you see that thing coming at you. If it's real, yeah, it's gonna that's gonna completely change everything. I don't know, I don't know how people go out camping again once they see one of those. You know, and I'm not I'm not in the be terrified of the outdoors camp, but. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you see something like that coming out of a wood line, you know, glowing red eyes, the whole nine yards, and then just be like, <laughs> get the s'mores. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go stay in a, you know, canvas tent overnight. <clears throat> right. But yeah, I would I'd love to see it. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, if they're real, uh, I mean, it's got to be, you know, I think of like when I go to the zoo and you see a grizzly bear and just, there's, I mean, it's a silly word, but majestic I mean, those creatures are majestic. Like, it's unbelievable. Um, and as a Christian, obviously, it all points back to you know, God's great. Nature is amazing, and the things he creates is unbelievable. For me. I mean, not for everyone, obviously. But um, I think that'd be unbelievable just to see one like that as a natural creature. Unless it's some sort of demonic animal, right? <laughs> you know, like and morphs out of a hole in front, or you know, pops yeah. out of a portal in front of me, and then I just run off screaming. Yeah, <laughs> and then it then it really changes my that life. That would, yeah. So, if you had a quote unquote dream sighting, would you rather see it first, or both realize like face like face to face, but both realize at the same time, or would you rather watch it? For a while before it realizes you. Oh, that's scary. So you're so you're asking me if like I would want it. So in both cases, it's aware. It becomes aware of me. Or but not in at the all. one, in the one, I'm just watching it from afar. Mm-hmm. I'd rather watch it from afar because you're gonna get more of a. Because you hear about people. The problem with a close-up instant sighting where it's like over all of a sudden is you're always gonna wonder if your eyes weren't playing tricks on you. Mm-hmm. Even if you saw it, like, right up foot. And I'm, I talk to guys who've seen them, you know, right in front of them. And I guarantee there's some part of them that still is like, did I did I see that? Like, Yeah. But if you could watch one, like, what's the, what's the guy's name who saw him in a, what was it? Like, he saw him in a field or something. He saw two of them. It was in Canada. It's an old, it's like a historical sighting. Mm-hmm. That's that would be like your my yeah. dream sighting is to see these things, and then you're able to observe them, see what they're actually doing, and it would solve most of my questions too about yeah. it, are they are they not only are they real or not real, but are they like some sort of weird paranormal creature? Mm-hmm. Is it, you know, an ape? There was that the, the Micah Mountain one where he was real close up. They like scattered his campfire and stuff like that. Do you remember that story? Yeah, that was, yeah. I do. That's not the one I'm thinking of. The one okay. I was thinking of is they were in, they were in like a field or something. Hmm. But yeah. Yeah. In the stories that you've covered, have you noticed any patterns that naturally so, suggest uh, themselves? Just typical, like water sources seem to be a big deal. The the, um, well, in all three of these cases, it's major water source right there. In fact, like, <clears throat> we got, uh, we were just doing this two weeks ago when we were completing Whitehall. There's a, that Pulteney River, I guess I'd never looked closely at the way the Pulteney River runs, but it, it runs, it literally runs around Bear Road and that field. The field's like here, and it's running in a, almost a circular pattern around the field, and right in the middle is this Abra Road and, and all that stuff. And that's a major river. It runs, you know, through Vermont, through New York. Um, there's bear dens all over that place. That Beaver Canal that runs behind the Caton's house, mm-hmm. um, that runs all the way up into PA, and it's a major water source. It wow. runs into a major water source too. I don't know what it is a run off of, but it's a it's a major water source. It runs right behind the Caton's house. And then obviously with with Boggy, it's the you know the Sulphur River. The inter- interesting thing about the the Boggy case is you know there's like a history of wild men sightings and all that kind of stuff. But I've done my research like trying to dig up really old historical sightings in Falk or right around Falk. I've got like nothing, hmm. nothing. But then you get into the early 1900s and Lyles dug up a lot of like local stuff so I don't know if maybe that's just because there's no maybe there weren't any major papers down there that would have covered mm-hmm. it but yeah the pattern seems to be like 
water. Okay. I mean, there, there's, there's a, in all three of those cases, there's a major river. Mm-hmm. And um, the people, the, the, all three of the movies, I mean, I don't know that Boggy will be able to focus on it as much, but Minerva is all about the Caton family. And Whitehall's all about the Gosselin family. And Boggy Creek's got, you know, it's got the fords, it's got the crab trees who are at the heart of it. I don't know that we'll be able to really focus on that with Boggy, but they're they're all kind of family stories. But the Gosselin family is definitely the focus. So we don't talk much about Wilfred, but he was as fascinated by it as his kids. I mean, he wanted to know what it was that his kids had seen. Mm-hmm. Children, family, water... I think you have some interesting advice for people who want to talk to you about the, the filmmaking craft itself. Mm. If somebody comes up to you and says, what do you, you know, how do you do what you do or how can I get started? What's your advice to a beginning filmmaker? It's that, it's that um, Nike quote, just do it. Yeah. This is my favorite thing to talk about. Like, I got, I got asked about this recently and I just like... That's what I, you know, I love the Bigfoot stuff, but like you never get to talk about the the actual process, like the filmmaking process stuff. That's what I miss is not getting to talk about that stuff. But but um, yeah, no, there's because of technology, I think anyone can make a movie. People that act like they're special because they make movies don't understand. I think that any, literally anyone can, if I can figure it out, anyone can figure it out. Because I don't have a lot of, I'm not technically adept. I don't know, you know, technology I'm not good with. I'd never shot film, you know, or, or used lenses or any of that stuff until the last year. Um, so that was all learning experience for me. And um, I don't know. I, I just think anyone can learn how to make a movie. Get a get a camera phone and go out and shoot a movie on your camera and then edit it in, you know, like HitFilm or some free editing software. I get asked every now and then by people, like, what do you, you know, what do I need to do? What type of classes do I need to take and all that kind of stuff? And you just, I think you just shoot and then start figuring it out as you're going on. Because, like, when I first got my, my next VG, the, the camera... I took that and every day was shooting film with it for the first like three months I had it, just nonstop shooting. And then I would edit in um, Adobe Elements when I got home. Mm-hmm. And I, I started out with shooting video of nature and like walk, I'd go on a hike and I'd take my monopod and I'd shoot some, you know, leaves or whatever. And then I'd just go home, grab some song and piece it all together. And even something as simple as that, where there's no one talking, there's no dialogue, there's no story, overt story, um, you'll figure out there is a story. Like, even in, in just images, like uh, leaves or whatever, it's just visual storytelling. Like, show a wide shot and then do a close-up. Or, you know, like, establish your... Do an establishing shot and then a fade or, you know, whatever. So if you want to make movies, you've got to make movies. You can't claim you want to make movies and then... Be like, um, you know, this just isn't working out, and I just don't have this, and I'm wait- I'm just waiting to get this because I hear that a lot. Like, it's this, it's same thing when with writers. Mm-hmm. Like, I want to, I have this book I've always wanted to write. You know, it's in my head. I just haven't had the time to put it down. Well, you've got time. You're just not using it. It's like, same concept with filmmaking is if you really want to be a filmmaker, you've got to, for one thing, you're gonna have to work at it nonstop. We've been doing this for over a year, and I still am. It's still like amateur hour. But I heard, but I heard a guy today, who's made movies that are uh, Academy Award nominated, say, they said um, they were asking about fear, and like, you know, like how he deals with fear, and and when he got to the point where he was confident in what he was doing, and he's like, I'm not confident. In what I'm doing. He's like, every time I, we turn the camera on or start rolling on on a new project. I'm asking myself, well, are you going to screw this up? What is wrong? You know, what are you doing wrong here? It's a constant battle with yourself over everything. If you listen to the part of yourself that says, I can't, you're never going to do anything. My dad used to say, um, there's 
verse in the Bible about a lion in the street. You know the verse I'm talking about? Is it a proverb? Yeah, I think it's a proverb. Something about there's a lion in the street, and basically using coming up with excuses not to do things. Okay. There's always going to be an infinite number of excuses not to do things. Mm -hmm. You know, like you get in arguments with people you work with, and you're faced with the decision of either making the movie you were started out to do or quitting. To make the movie like. There's always going to be an excuse not to do what you want to, you know, mm-hmm. not not just what you want to do, but what you should do. Yeah. There's always going to be excuses not to do it. Are there any directors that you really take inspiration from? Yeah, Billy Wilder, and uh, who I love because The Apartment this is like one of my favorite movies of all time, and uh, Sunset Boulevard. I love Billy Wilder, Cameron Crowe, because mm-hmm. I, I adore. Uh, Almost Famous is one of my all-time favorite movies. I see myself in that character, for some, that main character in that movie. And um, Say Anything is like, I adore Say Anything. Um, Steven Spielberg, obviously. like uh, Hitchcock, I grew up on Hitchcock movies. Ray Harryhausen. Um, there aren't many filmmakers, honestly, who I don't draw some inspiration from. Mm-hmm. John Carpenter, who I've only... I'm not crazy about any John Carpenter movie other than... Um, Big Trouble in Little China is probably it's in my top five. Yeah, and then I love what he accomplished with Halloween. But he's—I've listened to him talk, and he's like one of those guys where he does everything on the movie. He's like composing the score, he's like filming it, he's writing it. Robert Rodriguez is that way. I just bought Robert Rodriguez's uh, book on filmmaking. Uh, guys, that their movies I don't even care for. Kevin Smith. I can I can listen to Kevin Smith talk about filmmaking for days. Mm-hmm. Uh, Quentin Tarantino and you know guys whose movies I don't automatically love. I can take inspiration from, uh, but I did grow up on old like black and white movies as a kid. So a lot of David Lean. I can't leave David Lean. Mm-hmm. I, I love Lawrence of Arabia and Doctor Zhivago. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to have to just use this on both of our shows, by the way. So I feel like this is good. Yeah. Well, you know, I've been reading the making of Return of the Jedi lately. That whole series I've read. They're big coffee table books. Yeah, yeah. But the thing about a movie of that that scale that I was amazed by is how many people are involved making key decisions. Yeah. You know, and George Lucas is often pinpointed as... You know, the the lead visionary, and he was that, and I would never downplay that. But so many other people made decisions that were key in what ended up on the screen. Two of the best Star Wars movies are the ones he did not direct. Yeah, Yeah. and it's interesting in the Return of the Jedi information that I've been reading is to see the push and pull between Marquand and Lucas. Yeah. Because Lucas couldn't stay away. Right. And just the tension that existed on the set no. was, was pretty fascinating. But, and they let the tension sort of exist. They didn't try to resolve it. Yeah. Which I thought was very just intriguing. I think the whole when, process. You're, when you're in that situation, too, where you're making a movie and you've got more than one person, Whitehall is completely different from Minerva because Minerva was five guys making a movie and four of us were in the thick of it. So mm-hmm. there were con- there was constant back and forth um, arguments over creative dis- direction and all that kind of stuff. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think I think that can be a really good thing mm-hmm. for a movie. Um, but yeah, there's there's it, that type of movie scares me. Like I don't even know that I ever want to make a a, non, a, a fictional movie. I think I do. I have ideas for, for things I'd love to do, but. Um, with that, I, the idea of having this giant crew, like literally hundreds of people, and you're, I, that's that's intimidating. I, I can't even see that being very enjoyable for me because I feel like I'm not a great leader. I don't think I'm a, because I, I, I'm very Woody Allen esque. Like I, I do panic and I do get paranoid and like mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. And the good thing about what we do is it's like. It's me and just a couple other guys and then the subjects. Or it's just us out in the wood shooting B-roll. Um, so that kind of plays to my strengths a little more. But the idea of making like some huge 
movie with like a huge crew or something is mm-hmm. really terrifying. Yeah. Terrifying. But that's why I like listening to guys like Kevin Smith, where they went out and they made the movie Clerks for $20,000 or whatever and on credit cards, you know, and put himself in debt thousands of dollars and made this movie that became a juggernaut, like right. a cultural juggernaut. Yeah, and he wrote that, right? I mean, that yeah. was his whole thing. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what I like. See, I don't I don't care for cr- clerks. I did as a kid. I don't anymore. But I love listening to this guy who wrote, directed, did everything. Because that's what we're doing. You know, this is, that's what we do every day. Like, today I was di- designing box art for Beast of Whitehall, and then I handed it off to Sam Sharon, who was kind enough to fix it. Uh, and yesterday I was writing press releases that I will not be sending out anytime soon. Uh-huh. And... Um, I'm constantly working on trying to get the website to look better because it's hard. But we've got two events now, two huge events coming up between now and September in the Beast of Whitehall premiere and the Mirror of a Monster Day. And I've got to figure out how we're going to promote these things. And, and that's not even taking into account the fact that I'm finishing a movie with Whitehall while mm-hmm. doing pre-production. Yeah, that's another thing I did yesterday was send Lyle my completed interview list like the people I want to see in the movie mm-hmm. that I want to, want us to talk to it's you're yeah you do everything but I don't think I don't think any other way would be would work either for for a few reasons I think there isn't a lot of money in what we're doing because it's like it's the subject in a way and it's also just indie film like you hear guys who make indie films talk about how they worked day jobs and they were still making their indie film and most of their indie films weren't about Bigfoot mm-hmm. when you're making an indie film about Bigfoot I think there's some major pluses to it I think you can get a, a ton of press off of Bigfoot and I've seen it but sales and a broad audience aren't going to happen mm-hmm. sales might happen but like really, really reaching a broad audience, getting into like film festivals and that kind of stuff, is probably not going to happen. Right. There's got to be another reason besides Bigfoot. There isn't for I somebody mean, to watch the movie. Right. In a wide sense, it's the people. Mm-hmm. So if you can focus on the people, which is kind of what we're doing, I think you can reach that larger audience. But we've had we've been accepted by three film festivals and rejected by two, and the two that rejected us were the big bigger name artsy festivals mm-hmm. you know, the ones that we do want to get into because they open us up to a larger audience um, but I think because of the subject it's it's a little scary yeah. for them you have to make a movie about someone who thinks they're Bigfoot yeah and then you could get into yeah. the, there we the go. artsy I could just lie and say that's what's in <laughs> Beast of Whitehall it's about a delusional man <laughs> in a field <laughs> Hey, tell us a little bit about Brandon Dalo because he's his musical additions to these movies has been been pretty important, I think. Yeah, um, Brandon and I met because of Sasswat, kind of. I, I originally reached out to him because of the book you and I were doing mm-hmm. on uh, Ohio. Um, I found his name on the forum for like Oregon Bigfoot or something, and he told his dad's story about hearing that sound down in Wayne National Forest. And um, I contacted him. He came out to Minerva one of the days we were shooting, and that's how we met. We met in Minerva the day we shot the B-roll downtown with the car show and everything. He was down there. Or no, Christmas. That's what it was. It wasn't the car show. It was Christmas. So we met, and uh, a couple weeks later, he emailed me. and was like, hey, man, if you ever need music, you know, I can do it. I'm like, whatever. I didn't think anything of it because on these movies, the one thing we never have any shortage of is people offering to do music I don't know why Hmm. Um, this week I've gotten two people email me asking me if we need music so um, he sent me a sample and I listened to it and I was like well this is actually really good so um, I fought to get him on Minerva because we originally had a a temp score in place and it was royalty free so we were going to go with that I fought to get him on Minerva because I thought it was really good so we got him on there he didn't have a ton of involvement. He was just kind of, you know, he just did the music. And then towards the end, he did get a little more involved in meetings and stuff. And then um, last summer, we, you know, we had a falling out with the old crew. And the crew split off. And Brandon stuck with me. And we went and did Beast of Boy Hall together. Mm-hmm. So 
I jokingly call him my little brother, <laughs> but that's kind of how I feel about him. And I think towards the end of f- finishing up Whitehall, we were driving each other insane. Um, <laughs> just because we, you get so close to people, like you're with them constantly. Him and I saw each other every day for like, you know, a, a week and a half or something where we're yeah. just seeing each other every day while we're wrapping it up. And then we're talking constantly all day, every day. And uh, he's in Florida right now. I think he like secretly tried to get out of the state <laughs> to escape me. So he's like, I got to get out of here. Um, there, there wouldn't be a small town monsters at this point. I don't think without Brandon. So that's what I told him. I told him that like two weeks ago. And it's, it goes beyond just the music. Even though, to you can't underscore that the music on this, on these movies because I really think they kind of put the heart in the whole film. And I've told him that before. Like I think you bring the heart to the project. And because um, otherwise, if you watched the rough cut of Whitehall and then you watch it with his, the first time he played me. This is going to sound so goofy. The first time you played me the opening song for the uh, A-Bear section, I cried. Because it was like, um, he did this, he did some stuff with the music that was so cool. The music is just kind of forlorn, and there's like a melancholy to it that I get, because like that's what I see in the story too. And he put it in the film, and then he brought that same theme back a couple seconds later for the section about Paul Gosling. And it's like Paul's theme. And it's almost the same song, but slowed down a little bit. Tempo changes, and um, I th- I really think he brings the heart to the movie. And he's he's a hard worker, which can't be, you know, you can't understate the importance of that when you're doing this type of project. Because people want to be involved. We get we get, you know, people always want to be involved in it. And I'm like, you you saw when when we started on the Kickstarter, like. One meeting can go like three hours. It's it's crazy, and that's it. Really does become your life. And I think for the last like three months, this has been his life. Four months, it's been his life, and it was mine. I mean, it's all for me. It's been my life since Minerva, since last January, I think December maybe. And but for Brandon, I think it became it's become like his. It kind of consumes you. So you do want to keep improving and getting better at everything and I'm the kind of guy who only sees the negative in what I do so like <laughs> I'm always going to want to improve over yeah. what we did before yeah he's just really gifted at putting the right motif in the right place yeah and like the Minerva like the song that's on the guitar driven Minerva theme yeah it's over the opening credits I mean that's just that couldn't be more perfect of it's, a start it's, it sounds either. like Ohio and the the ending song to Whitehall, the one that plays over the final to this day, um, is my favorite song he's done. And the, it just sounds like the Adirondacks to me. There's he's got some sounds in there that to me sound like a stream running out of the mountains, and I've mm. seen that stream running out of the mountains, so I know. Like you can, I don't know that he's yeah, I don't know that he's, I don't think he consciously does these things, Brandon. I don't want to get too introspective on him without him being on the show, but Brandon's yeah. very... Um, I'm trying to think of the word. He's he's not extroverted. He's not an extrovert with his feelings. And to me, it all comes out in his music. Mm-hmm. And there's... I know he loves the Whitehall story. And he'll tell you that. Yeah. But there, it doesn't come with a lot of emotion. It's like, yeah, it's a real good story. But you hear it when you listen to his score. And that's where you hear Brandon's mm-hmm. love for these stories is on, on the soundtracks. But I think, I mean, just like I think Whitehall is a better movie than Minerva, I think the score for Whitehall is a better score than Minerva. It just feels perfect to me in a way. That, that last song, I love. I can't remember what the name of it is, though. But it plays over the it's end. It's called Seth's Favorite Song. Yeah, Seth's Favorite Song. <laughs> <laughs> Is he going to make that available as a... Yeah, we're, we're working on it. i got to figure out how we're going to do it still. Cause, but yeah, it's got to be available. We need to get them online, too. They're not available yet as a digital download. We need to do that at some point. Mm-hmm. We're exchanging glances across Glaring. the table. Glaring. Head nodding. Strangers in the night. <laughs> Well, Seth, would you tell us one more time, uh, if people are interested, they still have time to 
back the Kickstarter? How do they go about doing that? And what do they get? Kickstarter, yeah, just go to kickstarter.com and search for Boggy Creek Monster. Or you can just go to the Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash smltownmonsters. And there's all sorts of stuff in the campaign. There's um, T-shirts, hoodies, um, copies of the movie. We added a um, uh, window cling sticker designed by uh, your buddy Matt Harris. Yes. Who's an intricate part, integral part of the the whole Small Town Monsters team. Um, Sam Sheeran too. I got to say that he's been amazing, like helping me with design stuff because I'm not good at Photoshop and all that kind of stuff, and he's been helping out in a big way. Um, uh, there's just there's a ton of stuff on there. Hoodie, the poster. You can own the poster by Sam. Um, pens are all gone. Pens sold out in the first two days. So there's no pens left. But, um, yeah, there's a ton of stuff on there. So, trying to think of what else. If you're looking for our movie, shop.smalltownmonsters.com. Vimeo. Vimeo, too. They're streaming on Vimeo. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for being on, Seth. And thank you, listeners, for bearing with all the background noise and us... You hearing us glancing at each other, and thanks again for listening.